Oh, yeah, Spence. I'm so stoked to be back here once again on our Ventura Forward podcast, where we're searching for those tasty waves, hot tunes, fun in the sun, and righteous food across the 805. We're cruising, meandering through the 805 with our journalistic points of view. How's your week been going? It's been going really good. It's, it's been a nice week. Got a lot of stuff happening. My kid's birthday coming up, number 21 for Sunday. Uh, so we're getting prepped for that and uh, just hanging out, having a good time on the air at KVTA. 21 and 16 the kids turned this That's year. That's I'm an old dad. Those are some special days, though. Yeah, 21 and 16 are big days. I like it, too, because the son's 21, and that's, you know, a big milestone. The daughter was sweet 16. Yeah, and when you give a kid that's 16 years old a roll of quarters, boy, oh, boy, are they excited by that gift. <laughs> well, the roll of quarters went a long way as the Ventura City Art Walk. I was downtown today. I was flipping those quarters on the avenue, painting Johnny's, doing some more of that community service stuff. Define Johnny's real quick. For Johnny's anybody. Mexican Food okay. on the corner of Main Street at Ventura Great Avenue. Great place. Yes, fantastic. Go get your beefy, crispy, crispy taco, and I'm calling it the new Orange Whip. But it's called Orange, orange Bang. Whip. Orange Bang. Have you had Orange Bang before? I have not. Oh. What was that, like an Orange Julius or something? Yeah, it sounds like a swipe to uh, drink, right? It is an Orange Julius on ice, pretty much. So okay. it's delicious. But it's an Orange Bang. Yes, it is. Mm. With this podcast, now I love him creeping in here with a little bit of a voice because this is the anticipation everyone's been talking about. Instagram blew up this week. Not only because of a video that was made by that guest we're talking about right now, Spence, but because they're stoked that our interviews are coming back. It's been about six months since we've done our interviews with our podcast, our politicians, our elected officials, famous people in the city of Ventura. Let's bring it back today. A gentleman who I had a chance to be introduced to just in the last six months when X Games came through because all of our pro skaters across the 805 came a little heightened. Right? I learned more about Kern Caples. I got to interview Nigel Houston, who wasn't from here, but showed love. But this gentleman not only showed up in skating, but more importantly now, the number one topic in the city of Ventura and the 805 is housing, affordable housing. And this gentleman threw himself up. Mikey Taylor, ex-pro skater, current city council member for Thousand Oaks. How you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Not a problem. You guys are good at this. So did you ever skate uh, Jungle Land? Where was Jungle Land, Santa Barbara? Okay, Jungle Land. No, Jungle Land is, you know Jungle Land? Yeah, it was in Newberry Park for a bit. It was on Teal Boulevard, Jungle Land. Uh, it's now where the T.O. Civic Arts Plaza is. So when no, someone I didn't. says T.O., I always think of the old days. What happened was it, Jungle Land was a place of, of rides and animals, uh, like elephants and all that, and they had a bunch of pools. Right. Well, it went broke. And everything got drained, so skaters in the 70s were going mad over this place because it had not only a bunch of natural bulls, but oddly shaped ones because of the nature of the seals and what they had in there. That was like the park out here that we go to. Yeah, that was the indoor, right, Spencer? Yep. That was the indoor one. skate park over here off of Market Area. Talking a lot of history today. You might have heard of— Everybody went there. Everybody. Everyone went there, and then before I, when I started skating, it was like the late '90s, and it was right, it was the last year that the Pal Park was in Santa Barbara. I think it was Santa Barbara, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was kind of the famous one, and then you had Skate Street, and then Skate Street went into Round Two, and then it kind of you know died out. Remember, but, gr- great chance in this podcast, Mikey. Thank you so much for taking our invite, number one. Of course, 
I also want to give a quick shout out to the voice you heard in the background. That's Mr. Sam Teo, the man, the myth. We call a lot of our Ventura Four podcasts. So Sam's here helping with production. Appreciate you, Sam. And always going back to our intro music with Ray Fresco, bringing yeah. in those beats. Thank you, boys. Mm. But Mikey coming in today. We're going to do a little bit about bio, hear about his stoke, how he loves the city of Ventura. We already confirmed it in our pre-production. Yes, he does, folks. He loves the city of Ventura and the 805. So check that box off the list. Now we've got breakfast at Tiffany's in common. Let's find out a little bit about Mikey's from, what brings his passion, and then ultimately how he got into investing in the 805 and then bringing him more importantly to an investment property in the city of Ventura. So, Spence, I saw something on your mind over there, you big handsome man. Big blue something. Big blue something. Breakfast at Tiffany's. Didn't mm. they do that song? And I like breakfast yeah. at Tiffany's. Was that big blue something? I think that was the name of the band. I like music. Yes, you do. Not particularly that song, but when you said that, it made me think. As a young man. We digress occasionally. <laughs> I didn't. I like it. I we go didn't, off the rails. I'm enjoying it. I didn't really, as a kid, like that song at first. But then it, I, no, I, it's a, it's a good I, Then I looked into Audrey Hepburn and the mm-hmm. famous poster, and I realized in a moment, like, if I just have one thing in common with the girl, right. that was enough for me. Right. That was a magical that moment. And that's what Ventura Ford is. Right. That's why I got so much respect for you because I knew right away that you were a guy that shared that stoke. Right. We had friends in common. You can see on people's faces sometimes it does change, right? right? right. But what about, give me a favor, where'd you grow up? What are some of your early memories about the city of Ventura and how did you get involved locally? Okay, so I grew up, uh, you know, up the grade. Newberry yeah. Park is where yeah. I grew up. Um, I started skating late 90s, so I was probably 13 years old. Uh, I, I er, real early, I connected with Ruben Alcantar. He was kind of our connection into Ventura. Eric Bork was in Camarillo, but he had a little business out here with, uh, what was Josh's last name? Uh, I'm blanking. Feldman? Yes, Josh Feldman. So Josh Feldman and Eric had a little brand out here called Persona, I believe. Okay. And so that was kind of our, you know, connection into the Ventura scene, at least from the, the skate standpoint. Sure. And then, you know, Mike Anderson was like a little kid who, uh, kind of started hanging out with us when he was, I don't know, 10, 11. And so skating was just kind of, Vent- Ventura was the closest thing to maybe a LA vibe from a more urban kind of skate feel that was close. Because right? you're graduating Newberry Park in what, high school, what year? I graduated 2001. Newberry Park feels very, very suburb where, you know, Ventura felt a little bit more nitty gritty, at least from a skate scene standpoint. And then my family, my uncle and aunt lived on Oxnard Shores, and then my brother and sister were on Silver Strand. Mm. So kind of grew up surfing over on the Oxnard side and then skating here. Excellent. And you're seeing your mom and dad were up in Newbury Park. What was your What was your dad doing for work up there? What was kind of like your scene at home? What was going on? So my dad's a photographer. Okay. Uh, shot weddings. My mom's an artist. Uh, my uncle is a photographer and then owned a print press business. And so creative family. Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, it, it's interesting, like skating, you can definitely make the argument that it's creative, but I always felt like the outcast in my family in the sense of they are all spewing talent where, you know, my, my sister, for example, like she could look at you and just draw you perfectly. No, no schooling for that. My mom was the same way, just like very unique. eye. I never felt like I had it. I felt like I was more just black and white and, you know, even though skating would be creative, I just never had that. And I always wish I did. Yeah, because getting into skating at 13 years old, a little bit later in your career, you picked up that skateboard. You're coming down Ventura like you're describing. So you're meeting Mike Anderson in that grind around 16, 17. When did becoming a pro skater or putting that much time and involvement 
become maybe more an occurrence to your mind or maybe an actual something that you wanted to pursue? Yeah, it's a good question. So there were a handful of people, like I think Eric Bork was the first person we knew locally that went pro. And you know, there's something about seeing somebody do it in front of you that makes it feel possible. When we saw that, it was like somebody that we actually skate with on a daily basis became pro. It was like, oh my gosh, we could do this also. And so, you know, the beginning stages was just trying to get sponsored. And so we'd all make videotapes. We'd send them out to the company. Some would call us back. They start giving us free product. And then uh, very quickly, I just didn't want to stop doing that. I didn't want to go to school. I didn't want to go get a job. I just wanted to keep skating. And I felt like if I could get paid by these sponsors, that was the only path that would allow me to skate longer. And so I just kind of went all in and ended up working out, got sponsored, started traveling, and then... Before I knew it, it became a career. Next five, 10 years, were you traveling in the world? Were you based in the 805 the whole time? Because I think a lot of people always want to know, like, what is your experience? You talk about building housing and investing mm. in the community. Mm. What experience did you have? Did you stick, strictly stay in the 805 the whole time in this? And then, because you're a 40 year old man now and yeah. you're still a 20 year old young skater. Yeah, good question. So basically, we'd be gone about six months of the year. And it was usually two-week trips. So it'd be like two weeks in France, two weeks home, two weeks in Ohio, two weeks home. It was all over the place. And so I probably had about 10 years where Newbury Park was almost just where I kept my stuff. But when I was home, I wanted to like recharge with my friends. Like it was like kind of my uh, rebuild, you know, like peace and quiet and, and family. And then everything else was just, you know, more of like a worldly experience, which was awesome. Like, you know, having the opportunity to go somewhere like Spain was super cool. And then going to Brazil, which is so different. And then even like China and Japan, it was uh, it was eye opening to be able to see that much culture at a young age. I think it was very beneficial. Awesome. I mean, what a great experience. And to bring that home, did you feel like a, you're a local legend? Did you, I mean, I know you have close to say a million followers on Instagram, but for the 805, like we're so natural when you come home, were you so, having that big vibe of, yeah. of, of the pro skater and okay. all that stuff? Tell, okay. me, how that, and tell so, me how that morphed into who you are now as a city council member right. and an investment banker. Give me some of the transitioning from a pro skater into the man you are now. Okay. So when we got here, we originally talked about you sitting with Eminem early, right? Yes. Uh, when I started skating, it was uh, skating wasn't cool. It wasn't big. It was very niche. And so basically me graduating high school, the skaters were like we were picked on. Like nobody liked us. We were constantly at odds with, you know, called the jocks. And it, it was just like it was us against the world type of feel. Right. I graduate high school. I start traveling the next summer. And so I probably it probably took three years to where the skate industry actually started becoming somewhat significant Tony Hawk video game kind of changed our industry and then all of a sudden skateboarding became cool and I remember like I was 21 I went to like I don't know some house party and there were a handful of people that were not cool to me in high school that all of a sudden were like my bros <laughs> hey Mikey we haven't seen you and I'm going this is the craziest thing like you guys <laughs> legitimately punked me like nonstop. so that was pretty surreal um but you know, did I feel like a big deal? No, actually. Like, you know, what, what was cool about Newbury Park and, you know, in, in some ways, I think you actually experienced it more in Ventura. It was it, it was a very, like, humble and modest community. Like, uh -huh. you, you know, like if somebody acted up, you, you kind of got checked. And so I think it was, like, really good just for, like, learning how to maintain ego. Uh, I had people around me that would actually say no. That was good for me at a young age, you know? And like, right. there was no following back then. Like it was actually difficult to figure out how big you were as a pro athlete mm. in the early 2000s. 
Like there's no following count. So you kind of just tried to base it off of the product you sold. So I had no context. All I knew is like I was in the magazines, I was in the videos. And you know, if I went to a skate park, the kids knew who I was. And you've transitioned that note to into a lot of followers. Okay, yeah. So the, and then how did I get into the city council? And well, yeah, because when you came home, you're 30, and you're back home. Do you have, do you mind me, I have wife and kids? Yeah, I'm married. I've uh, been married for, oh my gosh, 14 years. Uh, I have four kids. My oldest is turning 11 on Thursday, so right before your oldest. Wow. Yeah. 11, 11, how, what are the others? So I go 11, 8, 3, and 1. Dude, you're in the diapers still. Yes, my 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 three year old <laughs> just got out of diapers. So now we're just one in diapers. We are two in diapers. Uh, it, it's it's been a busy few years. Well, thank you for your time even more now. Here yeah. I think, and you're just the council member, still probably riding your skateboard around town. Totally kidding. Yeah, no, but no. It means a lot to that to get your time and to put yourself out there. And so you got back home. You got your family going. Life's good, right? Life's good, and you go look for another way of life, and you get involved right away at a skateboarding. Did you get involved in real estate and investment banking? So no, what the where the real estate arm came was, okay, I, 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 I lucked out in a sense where my dream became a career. My passion became a career, which was amazing. But there was a big fear element to not knowing what life after skateboarding was going to be like, right? Like at 20 years old, I thought my only talent was skateboarding. And so the idea of what I was going to do at 30 was scary for me. Like how am I going to translate kickflips into like a, a normal real job? And so at a young age, I had somebody come in and actually help me build out a plan financially. First person to taught me, teach me about a budget. First person to teach me about credit. First person to teach me about what passive income was. And so I started on a plan at a young age. Didn't know much, but I had somebody at least, you know, show me where to put my discipline towards. Real estate started coming in a little bit later. It was about seven years down the road. And I was investing passively, which just means I was investing in other people doing it. They were doing the work. They were using my money and others to do it. And I got to make a return off of it. The first step out of skateboarding was in the craft beer industry. Me, Josh, who you interviewed, oh, yeah, and yeah. Paul Rodriguez started a company called St. Archer, which most people listening know Josh Landon and uh, we had a huge success with that business, but that was my first step outside of skateboarding into what felt like the real world. But because it was beer, it, the craft beer industry actually felt very similar to skateboarding, yeah. where you had a very core audience. You had the mainstream, which, you know, didn't, the core never likes the mainstream, but the numbers are in the mainstream. And so you're always playing this, you know, trying to capture this balance of how do I remain cool and keep the respect and get some of the mainstream to buy in which, without lose, losing the cool factor, Respect. that's what you're trying to land on, on a business. And we had that in the craft beer industry. It was the same thing as skateboarding. So that was the first step. When we sold St. Archer, Josh stayed in beverage, and Josh has a, oh gosh, a handful of brands now. Ashland, Villager, Mucho Aloha, a lot of stuff. Paul <laughs> Rodriguez is still currently a pro skateboarder only because he's basically the Kelly Slater of our industry. He's so good that even at 38, he's still better than the majority of 19-year-olds. He's just a freak that way. Where's he living? That's not the comedian's kid, it's, is it? It is. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I, I interviewed Paul Rodriguez's daddy uh, many times. Why don't we get Junior on here? Oh, I'd let's, love let's, to. Let's take this full circle. Paul Rodriguez is awesome. Paul's dad is he amazing. He talked about his kid more than he talked pa about himself. Yeah, Paul, his son is special. He's, he's, he's like an unbelievable person. Um, and so Paul stayed skating, and then he built out a company called Primitive, really, really large skateboard and apparel brand. They're oh. actually massive. Hmm. 
And then I moved in to start my current business, which is called Commune Capital. From a technical term, it's a private equity real estate firm. So basically, when I said I was investing passively in other people investing in real estate, that's basically what my business does now. We have other people invest with us passively, and then we go out and build and invest in real estate. So that's kind of the... So me and Spence can invest with you? Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. What's, is, there, is there a minimum we have to get There's to a minimum, and there's a whole... Ugh. There's a whole lot of regulation that I had to learn about about eight years ago when I started the company. The SEC uh, has a lot of hurdles that make it very difficult for people to invest, which is a whole different topic that we can talk about. Wow. It's kind of frustrating, actually. But yeah, there's requirements. There's accreditation. It's it's a so it's not just walking all of a sudden. I have ten thousand dollars in my mattress, and I want to hand it to you to get involved for a percentage of the pie. No, they make it very difficult. So basically Jeez. it's very easy for you to sign into Robinhood and for you to invest your money however you want and you can take an unlimited amount of risk in the stock market. Yeah. When it comes to what what my company is, it's called a private offering. Sure. Uh, they make it very, very difficult. Most people cannot do it, which is frustrating. Ooh, that sounds like the tip of the iceberg of the good that yeah. I know Mikey's gonna yeah. be bringing to not only this podcast, which lasts about 35, 40 minutes normally, right. but in the future right. of that inside info of you being in the water. We talk about Ventura Ford having our toe in the water to kind of hear what's going on, and we bring people who are actually swimming, right. living, working, and investing in that. Right. So thank you for bringing that knowledge and the information. And then the city council thing is, is new. I, I ran... Uh, my last campaign, basically the election was November. Never had a desire to get involved locally. Never thought I would ever be involved in anything political. Uh, decided to run very naively, not knowing what that meant. And, uh, <laughs> I've, I've I think, that. A, yeah, and I think a part of the 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 I don't know if naiveness is the right word or if that's even a word, but sure. there was a Naivete. part. Of, Let's go with that. that. I like that. Without that, I'm not sure I would have ever done it, and I'm not sure I ever would have won. Like, knowing what it actually took, I probably wouldn't have done it, you know? I have the rare exception experience. I tried doing that as well as right. a young person. When I moved home six years ago, they set up in districts, and I was yeah. going to city council meetings. I got up in the same district as Eric Nazarenko. Oh, yeah. Yep. Former mayor, current yep. DA, and yep. I would have known any of that stuff. I'm like, I'm running. I'm going in. I have knocked on over 2,500 doors. Yeah. Got it's life. brutal. It's it's really fun and exhausting and hard, and you're like you're glad you did it, and you never want to do it again, you know. But thanks so, for putting that in. So there. that's the whole. That's basically the, the the whole story up until 40 years old. Okay, so you're investing. How many investments have you guys in the last eight to 10 years since you've had your investment firm going here? How many properties have you currently been involved with and had people invest in and are currently? Oh, are they, are they actively working, or once you build them and invest, are they being sold off? No, you... we hold them. So, okay. yeah, so basically the strategy of what we do, uh, f at least from the real estate strategy side, we try to find something that's distressed or vacant or something that is not being used. Uh, why you do that, you typically can get something at a discount, right? And then we try to build something that is in demand in the area that we're looking at building. That's usually multifamily and storage are the two asset classes for us. Now, when I look at it, I'm going to throw out the only real estate acronym I know. Is this like a REIT? Oh, real okay, okay. Investment trust? Uh, so we have, with our company, we have a handful of offerings. And in those offerings, we have three that are private REITs. Okay. So you can have a private REIT and you can have a public REIT. Uh, just to, like, I guess have an educational part for everyone please a, a re a real estate investment trust allows you to invest qualified dollars into real estate and protects the tax incentive so when you have your iras or you know 401ks there's a different type of nuance there but 
you're putting money into a retirement account that offers some type of tax efficiency, right? You're either not paying taxes on your capital gains, if it's a Roth IRA, or if it's a 401k, you're deferring them, right? What you invest out of those is very limited, right? And if you invest in something in real estate that's not a REIT, to keep it very simple, you can be taxed twice. There's like mm. a double taxation element. A REIT allows you to not have that. So we do have a handful that are REITs. We have a handful that are not. Hmm. So so the, to answer your question, the amount of yeah. properties we've done, oh man, we have, we're on our sixth offering and it's probably between, I don't know, maybe call it 20 or so. You got 20 properties. And you said story, storage and also housing are those. And multifamily, yeah. So we have, uh, I want to say eight storage units. Uh, we have five multifamily currently. We've had a handful of them that we've sold off in the last couple of years. And then we have a lending portfolio as well, where we lend on other people's apartments or storage units. All right. Good. I, I like exactly where we're at in this Ventura Ford podcast with Mikey Taylor. Appreciate everyone listening. Get a few of our sponsors in there with Ventura Music Hall, Spencer McKenzie's, Johnny's Mexican Food, Pete's Breakfast House, which I've, I'm going to offer Mikey to go to if he asks after this little podcast we have going on. But it brings, I think, to what most of our listeners want to get now to our specific example. Yeah. Right? We've got a good background of where you come with your education and your yeah. experience. I love the time you've spent with us here. Now we know about your business side and, and the logic about what you're trying to bring. So when the topic got hot and the specifics are down to it, we're talking about the old car wash, we call it, right? right. On the corner of Santa Clara and Olive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. And it ha it's been dingy. It's been run down, as you described as a business, for maybe 10, 15 years. Everyone's like, how long is this car wash going to hold on? It closed down. Right. It was a matter of time before somebody bought it and upgraded. And look who it is. Right. Here he is now. Right. right. And you came out boldly, dude, and made that video right. and asked who wants to invest in Ventura at what's kind like a tumultuous time right now as we're going through our general right. plan update right so the first question is this when you made that instagram video did you expect the response that you got from the ventura people some good and some bad i'm assuming right, right? And most of the ones in the comment section bad some good ones in the dms which i could see why they wouldn't want that to go on there but yeah i mean a lot of it i understand but yeah keep going yeah so in that moment do you feel right now that you are where you want to be with that and just give us a little more about the specifics and we'll get some of the questions but yeah how did that launching of the property go how long have you had it good question and kind of what's the plan good question uh to answer your question I wasn't expecting the backlash on that property. That one to me seemed like more of a, I'm talking more like real estate terms, more of a no brainer in the sense of you have an abandoned car wash and how we bought the property, we bought it fully entitled. So basically we bought it and the city has already basically said this project can be this multifamily apartment with this many units, this percentage affordability, it was ready to go. And so I was like, you know what? This one probably is going to be more of a smooth launch, right? I wasn't prepared for the comments, but for the response of what the comments were, I was. This is something that, I mean, even in our community as a council member, uh, how you grow and, and then basically the dynamic of the state and the state ultimately pulling control away from the city council and putting it in a forced build scenario I understand that frustration. So a lot of the comments and why I tried to spend so much time in the comments section, which I wouldn't normally do that, uh, that's more or less because this is a conversation that we've been having with our community as well. Like, how do you do this? And 
it's interesting because I found myself in a catch 22, right? And, yep. and I'll, I'll kind of give a little bit more nuance for, for everyone. California as a whole, right, as a state, we've done basically a F plus D minus grade of building after the financial crisis. We just haven't built. And so we've been put in a scenario where we have population that's growing. We have a housing supply that's not matching the population growth. And, you know, fast forward 15 years, it's put us in a scenario where there is not enough housing available for the amount of people. It's why prices are so jacked up, right? Why that's happened, I think we can have a really good conversation around. But yeah, I think the major reason driving prices up is the supply nature. It's very difficult to build anything in California. If you're an investor, right, you're only looking at it through the investment lens, that's a good thing from a return standpoint. Because yep. if you own something in an area that's difficult to build and the state ultimately keeps your competition out, that forces appreciation to go beyond what a healthy market would be, right? Okay. So that's one end of it. Now there's the council member end of it, right? Yes. Where you're trying to make policy that's best for the community. And in my perspective, I don't think it's good for our state to be so undersupplied that basically we're forcing a huge amount of our population to ultimately leave. I don't think that's good. I don't think the pricing of real estate is healthy in comparison to seeing the Fed move rates the way they did and us looking around going, prices haven't moved. Why is my home not really worth that much less? And we've just watched interest rates more than double. That's not typically how it works. And so here I am in the scenario where I'm passing a lot of new projects in Thousand Oaks. Almost every new project that comes to Thousand Oaks, we are passing. Passing meaning that you're approving. We are oh. approving a ton of new projects in Thousand Oaks because in our community, the number one need that our residents are communicating is we need more housing, hmm. right? I, I don't want to, I don't want to basically compete with 15, 18 other people on one house. I don't want to put an application to rent something with 10 other people. This is driving the price up on me. We need options, right? And then uh, the added step for the city council standpoint is we we have to basically figure out how to have a thriving economy so that we have a lot of jobs to basically have our residents in. And a lot of the major employers are looking at us going, we have a young workforce that does not want to come here because there's no housing available. So where I land in the catch 22, <laughs> uh, I'm passing a ton of real estate because I think that's what needs to be done. That if that happens, that'll actually be worse for my investments. It, it means there will be more saturation and it would actually bring the return down. But I think, I don't think it's healthy and I don't think it's sustainable that we ultimately don't increase the demand or increase the supply to meet the demand. And so I, I would say that's kind of my opinion now. Yeah. Um, now, with adding supply, uh, there's challenge that, right? You know, so I would say some of, the, some of the feedback in the comments is uh, accurate. You know, when you add density, you're adding traffic. When you add density, in theory, you're adding crime. You're you're adding more to the infrastructure. Uh, I'm mindful of that. You know, I'm also mindful. Like when we talked about music, right? We talked about music. Uh, us us thinking a certain generation of music is better than others. And in my perspective, it's because of the the life cycle we were in when that music was relevant to us, right? For me, like late late '90s, early 2000s, that's what I connect with. I think the same thing applies to a city, right? Like you fall in love with the city, you fall in love with the characteristics of that city, and it means something typically in what, let's call it the golden years of you living there. 
And when you're adding on top of it, you're jeopardizing changing that character. So I, I understand that as well, you know? So with all that said, uh, I'm very aware of the challenge of it, but I do believe that it is a need. And I would say the, the last part of it is when it comes to building business, whether, you know, with entrepreneurship, I think the best way to make money is when you can solve a problem. When you can recognize a problem, if the problem's bigger or you can solve more problems, you put yourself in the opportunity to make more money. So from a housing standpoint, we've completely pivoted in the last five years to really look at California as our primary state of investing in multifamily, where prior to this, we were going after dead malls throughout the nation and mm -hmm. scraping malls and building apartments. So all that, I'll, I'll, I'll throw that out there and then I'll let you direct us. <laughs> yeah, it's Simi Mall up there on the hill. Right. Soon to be condos. Yeah, it's, it's, just, it's, it's it inevitable. It, it busted yeah. out. Yeah. It didn't, but they've got a skate park there. I yeah. mean, it's small. Yeah, it's yeah, the yeah. indoor skate yeah. thing that's kind of fun. Yeah, the, the, yeah. the Hall of Fame, the skate Yeah, skate exactly. Center, yeah. And they've got some ramps and stuff. In yeah. there. But I was raised in T.O., so I go way back. I, I got there in 61. Right. And the thing that's funny is what you said, it's just like music, as you pointed out. I lived there, what my heyday would probably be like when I was seven or eight years old up until I was like 18. Right. You had a motorcycle or you had a horse right. and you could go anywhere. And so they started building. I was in high school, yeah, I actually went to high school, and I did this big debate. I wanted to stop the Oaks Mall. Right. I wanted to, I was, I was a hippie, I, was a, I, was, I didn't want anything around, I just wanted to be wide open. Every kid at Thousand Oaks High School, you burn out, you, hit, you just don't like progress. If you look at I was raised in Thousand Oaks now, what happened to my city, it's all, and I say, dude, this is how it goes. So like you're saying, people who were raised there in the 80s, oh man, it's nothing like the 80s, I love this town. In the 90s, you'll see everybody right. as they move up, when right. did T.O. get ruined? And the answer is never. Right. Uh, because it's still, it's a nice city. I've spent a lot of time in Thousand Oaks. And it was a cool city. So the thing with T.O. is the NIMBY. Yeah. Nothing in my backyard. Right. And the banana. What's the banana? You don't know banana. No. Build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything. Oh. Oh, okay. I That's was a, a banana. <laughs> I was a banana. Get right. the hell out of my town. We right. want the hills. Shut up. Right. And that didn't work out. Right. And it wasn't practical. Right. It just right. wasn't. Because right. like you say, people got it. And you, how many houses could you, what? Okay, here's How many are we short? How many would it take to make it even, and what would that do to the elite property? Okay, so the state, the state's short about two million units, a little bit more. When when Newsom ran his last election, he ran on adding three point five million units by twenty thirty. That was kind of his initiative, right? Uh, and for basically context, we average about a hundred thousand per year over the last ten years. Wow. So if we're you know looking at his metric of three and a half million, that's not happening if we don't change anything till twenty ninety. And that would and add so, 10 to twelve million to the population. Yeah. So I'll, I'll kind of you know, and I'm, I want to let you talk because yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you're gonna have some really good points yeah. to really touch on. I think the concern and pain point of the community. But to ask your to answer your question, what happens? The typical developing cycle, right? This is something that we're seeing right now in Idaho. This is absolutely going to happen. Everybody leaves and heads to Ohio, right? Idaho. Oh, or sorry, Idaho. In <laughs> big, Idaho, big difference here. <laughs> in Idaho, you've now doubled or even more the population, and yeah. the housing hasn't matched that. So you have housing ramp up price-wise, right? Then all of a sudden, all the developers go, ha, there's an opportunity to build, right? When, it, when you go into the metrics of opportunity, of, of how you get to a point of building, and I'll keep it really simple, from a cost standpoint, there's a moment where you can, 
your rents support the build, right? Let's just call it rents are higher than the build, okay? So when that's the case, which it was in Idaho because prices have increased, everyone goes there. And now all of a sudden, everybody's brother's a developer. And what happens in those cases, they overbuild. So now we're gonna talk about your pain point, right? They typically build too much to get to equilibrium, but they actually go over. When that happens, there becomes vacancy. When there's vacancy, they have to bring prices down. And when that happens, you see a plummet. When you see that plummet, it no longer makes sense to build because rents then go below the cost to build. And then all of a sudden you see a pause and then you have kind of a healthy market and then the cycle starts back over once the population grows and then there's not enough housing and then rents increase, et cetera, et cetera. In California, those cycles don't happen. So, it, so to answer your question, what would happen is you would build from just from a financial standpoint, right? There's other implications, but from a financial standpoint, you would build so much that the owners would be forced to bring rents down to be competitive with the apartments next to them because everybody's struggling to lease up and then you see a crash. So prices would come down. I, I actually believe Spencer's like, oh my gosh, I have so yeah. much. No, yeah. I mean, I believe in, a, I do believe in a lot of the logic, everything that you're saying. Right. And I think that to where it gets in our community and the questions need to be answers are a, like almost the validity of the whole numbers. Right. Right. Cause an equation only has a solution if the numbers are finite. Right. But for the first thing, a lot of our followers say in me, especially is if the borders are open, and we're having 10,000, 20,000 of these predictions, almost daily people coming across. Right. State of California isn't accounting for that. Right. Right. And then most importantly, it's not the right to ultimately live in Ventura or Ventura County. It's the right to be an American. Right. Or even be the state of California. So I think the conversation starts there because when we bring the numbers down to the expectations, to the arena numbers, to what we need to build, right. that's where we get caught up. Right. And then also we get caught into the expectation of how much the state wants to purchase of the land that becomes available. Right. I don't believe right. a lot of these arena numbers become available and the market really appreciates to the level because every chance we get, the state housing authority wants to buy up those available spots. I, look, I hear and you then, on and, that they, and then they offer Section 8. Right. And then we come out and have public comments saying that people have been on Section 8 vouchers since 1998. Right. Who doesn't want to have supplemented housing and rent in Southern California to the point now where they're almost allowing you to earn less money to then want to be on the government? I agree. I agree. Right. right. And so that's where our city's at. So it's like, if I want to grind, grind, grind and get a place to live in downtown Ventura. Right. And now someone cool is coming in that I like. Right. Mikey Taylor is awesome. I've known him. Right. But from what I've seen the last couple of years is that these luxury condos aren't affordable right. for my lifestyle. It's getting right. caught in that middle. Right. So why can't, if I just keep saying Mikey as the example, go of ahead, course, go ahead, go ahead. why can't he come in and build something that's for me? Right. You know, I'm the 35-year-old. Right. I'm divorced. Right. I've got two kids and giving my wife a lot of my money. I want to stay in Ventura and I want to surf. Right. But I can't afford a, a bedroom for 3500 right. I'm living in a three-bedroom house with my buddy renting a room. Right. But I want more independence for my kids. Right. That's the scenario that we're fighting because we're pro-build in Ventura. Right. I'm a pro-build guy. I right. want to grow, actually. Right. I'm actually for more like take a piece of land, build 30 stories, right. and maximize the profit we have opposed to taking away our agriculture. Right. Because right. I don't want to cover any of the soil, right. Right. which I believe is the most beautiful soil. I'm, I'm in alliance with you there. Below yeah. the grade, right, because we know the, San, the transverse mountain range. If you don't know the topography, right. that's on you. Right. So if we cover soil, we're never getting that back. Right, I agree. So totally with agree. this philosophy and kind of, I think, the practical standpoint that I'm bringing to you in a nutshell, what's your answer to mm. why can't we build the modern 
priced apartments, whether there's more than 28 on that area, right. whether there's less than 28, right. people have told me, you know, I want townhouses. I want, you know, I don't want 28 condos. I want, you know, 14 townhouses. And what I've learned in this podcast is that the city doesn't always allow that because they set in certain properties up. That's a scary thought. Mm-hmm. But if community development department is forecasting mm-hmm. properties for investors to buy that then the community doesn't agree with, right. that's what happened here from what I'm sounding like, right? right? They kind of set you up. In well, a sense to where they could have done better communication. Hey, the car wash has been sold. Right. We've developed this best suited plan, we believe. Right. We're putting the property for sale. Right. Let's embrace this investor, whoever they are. Because my biggest thing, if somebody wants to invest in Ventura, I love you. Right. Because you're helping my tax base right. support all of my services. Right. So how can we, in a sense, find the middle ground to where people in Ventura are pro responsible growth, but don't feel like this is in that category. Okay. So, uh, I've got to clarify because how you started it, uh, there's a conversation that we could have. That's probably going to bow more towards policy and ultimately the government's involvement that would change a lot of this. So should I stay away from that and just address it based on the situation we're in, knowing that the government is very involved? Stay there, and then we'll go after some changes at the end. Okay, so considering that we know the game in front of us, the rules in front of us, and how we operate throughout that, right? When you're looking at, to answer your question, why don't you build something that's more affordable, or or why does it always have to be luxury? That's not controlled by the government. That's not because, okay. Because think in mind. So there's an element that is controlled by the government. Here's the dynamic, right? To build anything right now. Oh, okay, hang on. I got to start here. When you talk about the numbers, I have no idea. Like if the numbers we're looking at are false, I'm not sure what to do with that. Sure. You know what I'm saying? What I would say is whether they're inflated or not, where I do believe we are is that there's not enough supply. If you want to say those numbers are too inflated, that that's fair. But my experience, like I just went through this cycle six months ago, right? I would black mold in my house. I was forced out. My wife and I were trying anything to get into a place. I was putting offers in to buy something. We were putting applications in to rent. It was brutal, right? I thought we were undersupplied. The experience I had was shocking, right? Yeah. It, seriously, two houses. It was me competing with 18 other people. Uh, as far as putting uh, lease agreements in to rent, it was five or six other people. It was brutal. Now that's Thousand Oaks specific, but I would think that based on the occupancy we're seeing and that last go around, I do think we're undersupplied. Sure. Whether it's 33,000 units in Ventura County that they're stating, I think that's up for debate, but I, I don't know. Sure. Uh, to answer your question though, the, the city in the majority of cities throughout the state basically will have you put a certain percentage of affordable homes in your project, right? It's going to land between 10 and 15%. On our project on the car wash, and and really to to go specific on our thing, we're looking at about 15% affordable housing, right? For affordable housing, what it basically means is that you're capping the rents at a certain price and a certain income threshold can qualify, right? So then when we get to the nuance of building, the the building cost is the building cost. And right now, as we experience what we're purchasing, gas station, food, everything is expensive. Construction is, is as well. So we have a ceiling on how much it's going to cost to build. 
and what the rents can become to justify the build, right? Yeah. Remember when we talk about there's a point in time where the rents make sense to build, yep. and then there's a point where they don't? Yeah. Well, when you limit rents on the affordability side, right? So the, the owner is subsidizing the rents. How they're subsidizing it is with the market rents, right? And if they don't charge the market rents, and let's say instead of, let's call it $3,000 okay. uh, for a two bedroom, let's say they're gonna charge 2,500, right? They're putting themselves in a position where they can't build the project anymore because there's zero return to do so. You actually get to a point where you're either break even or coming below cost, which means you're losing money. And so nothing gets built. And so you're trying to find this threshold of how do I build something with affordable units and still put this pro this project forward. Mm -hmm. It's difficult. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, and where I think you, you, you land on this, now going back to our first conversation, is in my perspective, when the government gets too involved, we see scenarios like this, right? I, I am a believer in the free market. I think actually some regulation is important, but what I like is all of us trying to figure out how it works. And when I make a mistake, my prices come down and you get to thrive, right? But when the government basically forces us up at a certain point, and when I make mistakes, there's no punishment for me, yep. I think our whole entire environment gets outpriced. And so I, I personally think this is an example of the government trying to solve a problem and not allowing the free market to do it. And that's probably how I would go back to your first question. I, yeah. I, I think it, we're, it's just too large of a government. So in order to build right now, the government has handcuffed us to where this is the only scenario. Okay, so there's more to it. But, right? I, but, 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 yes, but, but you're actually, right. Yeah. So there's more to it now, now to really like to drive it forward. To build something in California compared to, let's say, Idaho, for example, right? Let's say you get something under contract, right? It's gonna take you two plus years to get it entitled, right? At that point, it's gonna take you another year or so to get the project ready to build. So you're three years in at this point, right? Then it's gonna take you two years to build it. Then it's gonna take you a year to lease up, right? So you're six years in from getting something that, let's say, is a vacant car wash and getting something on market that brings housing, okay? The timeline is out of this world. When you go to somewhere like Idaho, it'll take you six months to get entitled your vertical and, you know, Six year and a half. months. Oh yeah, it, it takes so long here. So that process it makes it challenging to build, right? Then you look at all of our added taxes and fees, right? Like Los Angeles is now doing this mansion tax. Have you heard about this? Have not, because I'm not involved okay, in so, mansions right so, now. <laughs> so here, here's what's interesting, right? Los Angeles County passed a policy for mansion tax and said, look, if you own a mansion and you sell it for over 5 million bucks, you're gonna have an added tax because we have a homeless issue. And if you sell it over $10 million, we're gonna give you an additional tax because we have a homeless issue. And that money's gonna go towards homeless housing, right? All of us here then go, yeah, you know what? Like you're living in a mansion, okay, I feel that, right? It also They're applies- They're not gonna sell. No, hang on, hang on. It also applies to multifamily, right? So now you have big, when we get into the big investors, uh, right? You have big investors that go, I'm not investing in California. Why would I invest here? I've got to take seven years to build a project. They fee add fees everywhere. I'd rather build where it's easy, right? And so we've had so many investors say, I will never build here. That's added on top of everything we're talking about, right? And it just continues to drive prices up because if you own here, you do very well. If you don't, you do not. And I think that's because we have a situation where 
we are constraining any ability to add anything new. And then you never get to equilibrium, like you mentioned. So that's my philosophy. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, and look, I, I understand that it's not perfect yeah. because there's there's impacts due to that. I, I'm 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 aware of that side. Uh, I just don't know how you ever get back to affordability without adding supply. You mentioned housing, uh, townhomes, condos, homes, right? This is something that we hear a lot in our community as well. And actually something that I, I would actually be on your side with. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I want people to have the opp opportunity to own something as well, right? When you go into the state numbers, right? Let's just assume they're accurate for this conversation, okay. right? The state's going to say, okay, Ventura, you've got to add this many units. Camarillo, you've got to add this many. Thousand Oaks, you've got to add this many. And you've only got a certain amount of land available. Most of them are going to go, okay, you know what? I could get 30 units on this lot of multifamily or five single family. We're going multifamily. And and then the other part to that is because of the, the nature of how expensive it is to build for a home builder, when you build something, you sell it, right? There's a lot of risk right now of not knowing where pricing is going to land. So from just an investment standpoint, what most people are doing yeah. is they're buying something that they can hold in case we go into a recession and a downturn so that they don't lose money. So I, I would say there's that added dynamic as well. Ho, ho, Mikey. So there's a lot there. My Mikey apologies. Taylor. No, Mikey Taylor. We brought him on here to talk to us. And that's what's good about these interviews. We let you do the talking. We're doing the listening. People are going to be listening to this over the next probably couple months getting after this and just really understanding this basic knowledge. Right. This has been a perfect podcast and that perfect level of introduction. This isn't about proving this or how we're solving this. This is about getting information to the people and allowing them right. to brew that and stew that to understand how many restraints we're behind right now. Right. And it ultimately gets down to, and Spence, you're gonna, uh, how, how many minutes do we have here? 40, 45? We are at 45 on the news. Ooh, going longer. We're going to wrap it up here soon. Okay. But it gets into having this knowledge. And if people want to say, okay, Mikey, I agree with you. And I'm with you. We can't stop the building. We can't really build what we want. Sounds like we got to do this through voting change, through Sacramento, through maybe more understanding about our arena numbers and expectations. Right. So what's the call to action? Yeah, that's a good question. For somebody that's in Thousand Oaks right. who voted for you, and they're like, dude, stop approving all these things because I'm not, I understand what you're saying about my nostalgia when I'm a kid. Right. right. I, can, I can shed that. I'm a man. Right. I'm a woman. I'm grown. Right. But now it seems impractical because when we're building all these units, the rent's not coming down. Right. And so when does it stop and when do we stop building? Because from what I'm hearing is the government won't allow this to stop. They're going to cre keep creating a scenario where investors and good investors have to have a max return on their ROI. They can't really give the community benefit like me wanted to have like a surf academy. Right. My, did you read my idea about yeah, that? I like it, yeah. You know, it's quick. It's simple. It's fun. But it's like. Why doesn't the government, I'm not, don't answer this, the government can supplement in unique projects. It sounds like they're only supplementing in Section 8, vouchers, mm -hmm. certain stuff like that. So what's your call to action to somebody okay. who says, I want to change this because what you're doing I don't right. like. Right. And what the government's telling me, I don't like it either. What's my call to action? Okay, so the call to action over the last, I mean, prior to the last four years yeah. has been elect city council members. Okay. Right. Uh, I, I went to a big conference in Sacramento last week. And it was basically going over all of the state law policy. The state's number one initiative is this. They have taken almost all of the control out of the city as far as your city council members. Uh, there's something happening right now. It's happening in Santa Monica where if you don't have the certain amount of units in your general plan, right, 
and a developer brings a project through and the city doesn't basically approve it or say that it fits within, I think it's like 30 days. Yeah. The developer can now go around the city and they basically then follow the state development regulation, right? So in Santa Monica, what's going on? They have a four story cap, right? Which we're all gonna okay. appreciate here. Uh, developer comes to them, I wanna build this project. They basically ghost him. He goes around the city. He now has a project that looks like it's gonna go 15 stories tall and I think 3000 units, right? And the city's going, absolutely not. They're trying to sue him. It doesn't look like they're gonna be able to stop him, right? That is what the cities are up against. And so, you know, I think what, what your frustration is, and I do want to say this, is as a council member, it's not easy. Like, it's, it's hard. So, you know, you talked about communication, and it's, I have sympathy for the council just like I do for us, and I hope people do for us. It, it's a tough job. Where do you stand right there? Do you think the state should be able to tell a city what to do? Or, okay. Or do you find yourself being upset about that situation? Honestly, uh, like when I hear the Santa Monica one, I go, this is ridiculous. Yeah. That's, that's my first thought. Where, and I'll be totally transparent with all of you, I find myself arguing against myself, right? Naturally, I have the opinion that the city understands the city better than the state does, right? You understand Absolutely. Ventura better than Sacramento. That's 100% for sure, right? You know what's going on with the avenue. You know the surf yeah. spots, right? But what I haven't reconciled is... If cities aren't building and you, you continue to stretch this out, mm -hmm. right? You, you, you still have the strong, you know, what we call NIMBY movement and council is continuously blocking projects or making it impossible to put a project on. Our real estate is going to continue to head in the direction it currently is. And so I don't know, I'm not sure how you reconcile that other than the state going, I'm forcing you to let projects get through. I, I don't know yet. Uh, do I like that? No, I, I, I want the city to understand. I want the city to have as much control as they have, but I don't know how they, they reconcile that issue. Thanks for being open, honest, and real. Let me today. ask you, what's, I mean, I mean yeah, you, please. You, how do you solve that if, it, it, I guess there's two options, right? There's either we tell the new generation, go somewhere else, which, yeah. okay, maybe, or, I don't know what 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 is for what me. Are I'll yeah. give it to you here. For number one, we look deeply into Prop Thirteen, all right, and investment properties, right? Because on the avenue right now, we had you know sixty five percent of our single family homes are, are rentals. I look, that's a whole one we could talk about too. And, and we're so, going to have to do part two of this. We we definitely will. And number two, I look at um, short term vacation rentals, right? Um, I look at ADA units, right? You know, and more of those less short term vacation rental. You know, there's ways that our community has been used as an investment plan. Right. Other than updating small vacant car washes. Right. I like that. We all want that updated. We all want that to be there. Right. Do we want community space involved? Absolutely, because we don't just want apartment building, apartment building. Right. But what people aren't talking about is the turnover that's happening naturally in the existing places. Right. I would like to possibly see more government input on house sharing. Right. House sharing, vouchers for house sharing. Like right. all these Section 8 people who have vouchers, maybe there's a senior man that has a four bedroom home that he said, I'm living in this house until I die. Right. God bless him. Right. And no one wants to live around him. But you know what? If he had a bedroom for rent for 500 bucks, Sam might go hang out. Right. You know? And so there's ways that I believe that right. we can cure a little. It's not going to be curing it with one magic stroke of the wand. Right. It's going to be a little over here, a little over there. The right. numbers go down and eventually we're going to see a trickle effect. Right. But it's got to be spearheaded, again, by the government 
but in a pro-community way right. where they're not making money permanently. Right. I, I'm against a lot of our Ventura Santa Barbara Housing Authority situations because once it goes in their claws, yeah. it's not coming out. Yeah. And once it goes in your claws, yeah. in a sense, in your for-hold business, it's not coming out. Right. So I'm looking, there's the loss of opportunity. Right. If you're coming in an investment firm and saying, I'm building and then for purchase, well, I'm, in, I'm into it a lot more. Or if the state's buying something that says, we're doing programs, and in 10 or 15 years, if you do this and all of a sudden you get a higher income, you don't have to move. You can purchase that place. Let me ask you this. Yeah. For two minutes left. Two minutes. I'm gonna, we're going to knock this out. Uh, for you know, the, the Black Rocks and the institutions buying single family and the international dollars and the short term. I hear you on that. I, I think that's exacerbated the issue. On multifamily, right? Because multifamily is not a for sale product. Okay. Right? It's a buy to own. What do you think about bringing the community in as investors in the new projects so they get to have ownership in the new projects coming in? You're taking, Is that a pro or a con? 100% taking words out of my mouth. Ventura Ford eventually would love to be a platform that allows crowdsourced funding right. for people to invest. Right. I need $50,000 to buy a home. Right. I can pay $4,500 a month for rent. What if you bring it down? What if you bring it down to $5,000? bucks? 5000 investment. I'm Everybody in the community actually has an ownership stake in the new apartments coming and in. And then it's a piece of pie, and then 50 people all have a piece of pie for $1,000. I think the residents not only would invest in me, I think they would invest in Tom. Right. I, mean, I love the idea, but how do we get by it in the crypto? In a, in, it's more of like a blockchain evolution because you're saying it's so difficult to invest with the government. Will the government ever like inval uh, validate or allow that type of investing? They'll make do it. They? They, they do. They do. They make it difficult. The, the reason I'm asking that I've been I've been heading down this journey. I know we only have like ten seconds now. Yeah. Of wanting to launch this type of offering. Really. It's, it's a regulation A plus offering. Uh, I've spent the last four years basically figuring out how our business can be put in position to do it. Where you remove the the hurdle of having to be an accredited investor, you remove the the high hurdle of a hundred thousand dollar minimum investment, and you go, this thing's wide open. Let's go get it. Yeah, right? um, maybe this is a good. That's the solution this to this the, podcast. The VTA fund, and it's non-accredited. Everyone that's from the community, maybe it's Ventura only. Maybe you do this fund where only eight hundred five gets to invest into it. I don't know, dude. I want to. This is so exciting to my sense is that I not only want to invest, I want to receive. Right. And when you get that, that's community working together. I always tell everybody, community and business, especially in Ventura, was two things. You had something and I wanted it. Right. Supply and demand. Right. It was bananas, it was peaches. Right. Let's trade our bananas for peaches based on what we need. That's America, that's the human spirit, that's the tribe, that's the village. We've lost it. Right. We expect Sacramento, a big daddy from a foreign land, to take care of us right. as the Britons did the Americans before we came over here. We've lost that way of life. Right. Let's get back to trading with each other, right. just like I know me and you are gonna do forever. Yeah. And Tom's allowing this for the last 35 years in, in, our, in our community, right. allowing people to share bringing their voices in. Sam does it through martial arts teaching. We're surrounding ourselves, so this podcast, Mikey, will be continued. Okay, let's do it. And we're gonna just note off of this that we're stoking that vibe because we got the community at our hearts. Yeah, yeah, and I think the next thing we, we I think the next podcast we have, uh, 
just hearing you talk, there's actually a lot of similarities that we have in our, our overview. Yeah. So it'd be nice to, to spend some time doing and that. And let's bring in the, the community knowledge that I have with your experience in finance, because I don't have that. Right. I know Spence, and we all learned a lot from you today. Let's use that experience from the skater that was a kid. Right, right. I mean, bro, right. I'm still the fucking 43-year-old little Grom sponger yeah. who never grew up because I didn't have enough aspirations to go to college right. or have that mentor. Right. I was stuck behind the bar. Right. I was stuck doing service work. Right. That's our community. Right. And you can be a somewhat soldier, savior for that. We can take the influence of Bid Bag Mikey Taylor developing using his council member seat as propping himself up as I got 50 messages about <laughs> to dispel the truth right. to say that your heart's good because we know about your wife. We know about your family. We right. know about your background. Right. And if you're going to just put that all up there and go against it, I don't believe it. Right. And so let's work together. And finish this up on like podcast that. number 68, like Spence. That. It was a lot of talking. How you feeling? I am for the invisible hand. <laughs> you love the invisible Adam hand. Adam Smith. Wealth of Nations. Somehow he does it. That's what they call him. The best in the business. And we got Sam over here again. I'm Ventura Ford. Mikey Taylor, a big shout out to you. Until next time, it's Ventura Ford Podcast. Let's go. Let's go.